1: If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it. Brought to you by the new film Trumbo.
2: Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. The people of France are observing another day of mourning for the victims of the terrorist attacks on Paris on Friday night. Last night, the symbol of the city of light, the Eiffel Tower, was darkened in mourning. All the while, we are seeing vivid evidence of the resilience of the people of Paris, and we're also learning more about the perpetrators. We'll have reports this morning from Elizabeth Palmer... Contessa Brewer, and our David Turacamo. We'll also be showing you the work of a photographer trying to prevent thousands of animal species from vanishing. Martha Teichner will report our cover story.
3: Oh, so sweet. Meet Tallulah, the fennec fox. National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori is hoping his pictures of the twelve thousand different animals in zoos around the world will help save them from extinction.
4: The very last—that's the very last of his kind. The rabs, fringed limb tree frog.
3: Later this Sunday morning, portraits
2: of peril. Sylvester Stallone, first attained fame portraying a boxer who won against all odds. Now, all these years later. Rocky Balboa is back, as Stallone tells Harley Cowan. Sylvester Stallone has
5: always maintained that Rocky sprang from his childhood. Was that you growing up, that you no. wanted people? No, in the sense that you wanted people to think that you were big and tough, when in uh, reality,
6: not so much. Oh, I am big and tough. I don't know if you noticed.
5: <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, on his latest incarnation, of the Italian Stallion, ahead on Sunday morning.
2: Even on a grim news weekend like this one, the funnies can provide a welcome diversion. With Rita Braver this morning, we'll mark a comic milestone.
7: 92-year-old Mort Walker has been drawing Private Beetle Bailey and his pals for 65 years. You were in the military. Were you as big a goof-off in gold brick as Beetle Bailey?
6: Where do you think I get the inspiration?
7: (laughs) (laughs) But Beetle is only one star of King Feature's syndicate. Celebrating a 100 years of funnies, Ahead on Sunday morning.
2: Tracy Smith talks with Sarah Palin. Steve Hartman visits with some dogs on a roll. We'll note the birthday of the great artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, and more. Just
8: ahead, the attacks on Paris. Based on the true story,
9: Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in
8: Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs.
9: Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors.
8: So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must see pictures. Brian Cranston towers. Be prepared to go to prison. Helen Mirren is terrific.
7: Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have.
8: Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. The president
2: of France is promising what he calls a merciless response to Friday night's attacks. Attacks he called an act of war. Elizabeth Palmer is in Paris for us this morning.
9: The opening salvo in this war left Paris reeling. As ambulance crews raced to help the wounded, The picture became clear of a coordinated, multi-pronged attack by at least seven terrorists on six targets, including the Bataclan Concert Hall. Listen closely. What sounded like drums is actually gunfire. Then chaos. There was a lot of panic. Everyone was thrown to the ground, this witness said. They'd shoot a little everywhere, randomly. (laughs) For an hour, as police got into position to storm the building, a French journalist filmed desperate music fans trying to escape. Some managed to get out a back door, dragging wounded and dying companions. We heard shots, this woman said. It was as if people were being tortured, terrible, carnage, dead people everywhere. A few blocks away, gunmen had also opened fire on crowded restaurants and cafes. That's where 23-year-old Californian Noemi Gonzalez was fatally shot. The story in the city's main football stadium was of tragedy averted. Thousands of fans were kept inside after the game ended, safe from two suicide bombers who had planned to kill as many of them as possible. The French president, who'd been among the spectators, was hustled to safety. Later, François Hollande spoke to the country. Terrorists capable of carrying out such atrocities, he said, will be shown a France that will not be intimidated. In less than 24 hours, police working with forensic teams said they had identified all the terrorists. But they've only named one, a 29-year-old French citizen and petty criminal, on their radar as an Islamic radical. Last night, spontaneous memorials grew wherever the terrorists had struck. The country will now observe three days of national mourning for an attack ISIS claims to have staged. As the group itself said in a statement, our brothers aimed their weapons into the very heart of Paris. Less than a year ago, Islamic radicals killed journalists at the Charlie Hebdo magazine and customers in a Jewish deli. But as more than one Parisian has remarked, this time it's different. They didn't target a specific profession or group. They were gunning for everyone. And from around the world, support has poured in. International landmarks lit up with the colours of the French flag. Solidarity in blue, white and red.
0: They're very curious about everything.
9: (laughs) Uh, Next vanishing, and later King of the Comics.
2: These are just a few of the animal species at risk of vanishing. It's a calamity that photographer and Sunday morning contributor Joel Sartori is trying hard to prevent. Our cover story is reported now by Martha Teichner.
3: They haunt you, these eyes, as intended. Eye to eye, you're supposed to regard the greatest and the tiniest, the lowliest, equally.
4: If we can get down and look these species in the eye, really get down low and really look them in the eye, and you see how, how lovely they are and how much intelligence there is there. They're telling us something. I mean, they're, they're shouting it to
3: me. For 10 years now, our friend National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori has made it his life's mission to be their messenger, and he hopes their protector, their Noah building a photographic ark.
4: This is the ark room, we call it. Uh, we have 5,002 species in here, Wow. all rolling past. Uh, at this rate, it would take two hours to see them all. It's supposed to just overwhelm people with, with what life looks like on Earth.
3: And what might
4: soon be extinct. The very last, that's the very last of its kind, the rab's fringe limb tree frog. His name's Tuffy because he's outlived the projections. He's like nine years old at least. So when he's gone, that's it. That that's one it. will be extinct, yeah.
3: Sartori's photo arc will be at the National Geographic Museum in Washington, D.C. until April. This is the northern white rhino
4: that I photographed at Diver Krlave Zoo this summer in the Czech Republic. There were five at the time. There's a very old female named Nibiré and uh, she died one week to the day after we photographed her, and now there are four. This is the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit. Um, that animal's gone extinct. She was very near it the end of gone her life. Extinct? Yes, yeah. You can see her from the other end of the, of the exhibit. We wanted people to be able to see her and to come into this room and have, have the experience of, well, this is what we're talking about. This is the consequence if we ignore the world around us, right here. This is the consequence of that. We lose thousands of species to extinction per day on this planet.
1: Scientists um, over the past uh, 500, well, half a billion years, um, we've seen five mass extinctions. Um, You think of things like volcanoes and an asteroid hitting the Earth. Scientists currently describe the loss of plants and animals right now as the sixth mass extinction.
3: Anthropologist Catherine Workman is senior director of National Geographic's Protecting Wildlife Initiative.
1: We're losing animals at a rate a thousand times that of rates of extinction in the past, um, which is unparalleled. It's, It's an extinction that we haven't seen since the loss of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. We have habitat loss, we have hunting, we have climate change, and the the combination of all these threats on a planet that's shortly going to have more than 7 billion people um, is really hammering the planet's uh,
3: biodiversity. Joel Sartori didn't set out to create a photo arc. It began as an act of desperation when his wife Kathy was diagnosed with breast cancer, and he needed to stay home in Lincoln, Nebraska. I just thought, I need to shoot something. Kathy's going to be
4: sick for a long time, and and uh, on the days when she felt better through the chemo cycles,
3: I just needed something to shoot. So this world traveler who shot 35 stories for National Geographic.
4: That's what I came here for, right there.
3: Including six covers, drove to the Lincoln Children's Zoo a mile from his house and asked if he could photograph the animals.
4: They let me take a naked mole rat and put it on a white background. That's how we started it. And then I did a couple of uh, blue and black poison dart frogs, I think. And that was 5,400
3: species ago.
10: They're very curious about everything.
3: (laughs) Sartori is not quite halfway through photographing all 12,000 animal species in captivity, endangered or not. He figures it will take him the rest of his life to finish. He's taken pictures at more than 200 zoos in the United States alone. The how-to part can be tricky.
4: There he goes. You don't need to chase for anything. We're just standing here to, as okay. living fences.
3: Living fences. Okay, come closer, George. Wrangling flamingos. He's in the shadow, since all the lights come straight back. Not quite like getting your ducks in a row.
4: So now, doesn't this look nice? Doesn't this look nice? Perfect. It's perfect for chimps.
3: On the other hand, success is not always guaranteed. Not a bashful bird at all. Ow!
1: Ooh, <laughs> crap!
3: And there can be hazards. You've heard of angry birds? This is like a $6,000 camera. Doesn't he
4: know that? Hey, 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 hey! This bird, the nastiest, most badass bird I've ever had to do. Got it, got it, got it, nice. Why zoo animals? Zoos often have the only populations of these animals. They're gone in the wild, and if it weren't for zoos, a lot of these species I shoot would be extinct by now, hands down.
3: Sartori accepts that people fall in love with fuzzy, cute animals. like the fennec fox, these at the St. Louis Zoo. But he wants us to appreciate the importance of the uncuddly ones, the ones we've never heard of.
4: And this is often the only voice they'll ever have before they go away. This is their only chance to sing, in a way.
3: His animals have been projected on the Empire State Building and at the UN. Soon they'll be shown on the Vatican. This has gone extinct, and this. Anywhere he can, as often as he can, Joel Sartori pleads for their lives. This is the best time ever to be alive to save species because there's so many species that need our help. He hopes his photographs will get people to help, and he likes to hook them young.
4: What grade are you guys in? And you already know that tiger bones are sold as medicine? You know, I I do take comfort in the fact that all is not lost by any means. In this country, whooping crane, black-footed ferret, California condor, Mexican gray wolf, all those animals got down to fewer than two dozen. And they're all stable now. Not in the best shape, but stable. And that just speaks volumes to the fact that people do care But we have to let them know these animals exist and that they're in trouble and what the need is
3: the ark is joel sartori's invitation to look them in the eye to look hard
2: next georgia on our mind
11: i painted it so often it became mine
8: georgia o'keefe based on the true story trumbo you're the highest paid writer in hollywood in 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs.
9: Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors.
8: So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers be prepared to go to prison. Helen Mirren is terrific.
7: Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have.
8: Trumbo. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere thanksgiving
6: in this untamed land of space lives an american painter georgia o'keefe
2: and now a page from our sunday morning almanac: november 15th 1887 128 years ago today the day artist georgia o'keefe was born in sun prairie wisconsin educated at the art institute of chicago O'Keeffe's works first won notice in 1916 at the New York City Gallery run by the famed photographer Alfred Stieglitz. She soon became his muse and his model, and in 1924, his wife.
6: Wind-blown desert seeds drift here to flower and die and grow again.
2: Following his death in 1946, O'Keeffe left New York for New Mexico, where she'd been occasionally spending time. Its desert landscape fascinated her from the first, as she recalled in this 1981 interview for Sunday Morning.
11: The country, my God, I saw the country from the hill up there. And I looked out in this valley, there, there are red hills that go off and off, and these cliffs go quite a long distance. And nobody was living, and nobody lived down in it.
2: Inspired by her surroundings, Georgia O'Keeffe painted flowers, animal skulls, and the vibrant colors of the desert landscape.
11: I painted it so often, it became mine. I've looked at it so long. Just go right ahead and I'll just try to keep up.
2: Active and alert deep into old age.
11: What are you doing?
6: I'm shooting your hands. Georgia O'Keeffe
2: died in 1986. She was 98. In 1997, a museum devoted to her work opened in Santa Fe. And last year, one of her paintings, Jimson Weed, White Flower, Number One, 1932, sold at auction for just over $44 million, far and away the highest price ever paid for any work by a female artist. Just ahead, see you in the funny papers. Read beyond the headlines about Paris this morning. And in many newspapers, you can find this. A special section saluting 100 years of the funnies. Rita Braver takes a look.
7: They are names many of us have grown up with. Blondie, and Dagwood, her sandwich-making husband. Wow! Popeye taught us to eat our spinach, and this little fellow became synonymous with mischief.
12: To this day, people know Dennis the Menace. I mean, you might have a child and describe him as a Dennis. I think that comics gave people a way to talk about who they are or or compare themselves to someone.
7: And one thing that these and hosts of other comic strip characters have in common is that they were brought to us by King Features Syndicate.
12: We have about 65 comic strips right now, and over the years we've syndicated hundreds of different comic strips.
7: Brendan Burford is now editor of the syndicate, but it was created one century ago by the brash and bold newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst.
12: He was audacious. I mean, he was uh, the original media tycoon. He, he understood something about connecting to the masses and giving them what they want.
7: Turns out they wanted the funnies, as Hearst figured out when he stole the yellow kid from rival publisher Joseph Pulitzer. It was 1896, and the first color Sunday supplement featuring the kid and other strips sold 375,000 copies of Hearst's New York Journal. He realized he could get a group of newspapers to share the costs of hiring a stable of comic strip artists.
12: He said, I can collect these and send them out to the world, essentially. Um, And he did that. Come on, Uncle Mac, give me a
7: lift. By 1915, Hearst had formed the King Syndicate to distribute comics and other features. There were existing syndicates, but King became, well, the king. And still is, with comic strips now published in 2,800 newspapers in more than 70 countries. Some, like Flash Gordon, have become screen stars, too. Save yourself, Flash! you have been burned to a cinder! The game's
8: lost, Ming! Stop your attack on Earth and I'll spare your life!
7: And like Flash Gordon, many comics have been drawn by a series of artists over the years. But the strip with the longest, continuous run in history drawn by one artist is Beetle Bailey, that slothful, perpetual private. You were in the military. Were you as big a goof-off in gold brick as Beetle Bailey?
6: Where do you think I get the inspiration? At <laughs> 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 Lazy... I was always taking a nap. I don't care where I was.
7: At age ninety two, Mort Walker has been drawing Beetle and his cohorts at Camp Swampy for sixty five years. Why do you think people are still reading the strip?
6: i Well, what I like to think is that i I keep coming up with things that make him laugh.
7: Yeah, Today, his I sons Brian <laughs> and Greg work with him on both Beetle Bailey and a strip Walker co-created in 1954 called High and Lois.
8: It was kind of about
5: our family. I could see things that happened in our family life would end up in the
8: comic strip.
7: Today's comic strips must reflect the past and the present. So is that hard, walking that line?
8: Uh, It can be. There's always changes. Everybody's got a cell phone now and computers and all that.
7: In the future, do you think all comic strips will be online and not really in newspapers?
12: Well, uh, you know, I've always had a very agnostic attitude about this. Wherever they might want to digest this stuff is where we're going to be.
7: And at the recent Comic Con in Manhattan, drawing legions of youthful fans, King Features artists were busy autographing a new book, celebrating the syndicate's centennial. Today, strips like Ray Billingsley's Curtis show how cartoonists and their characters have become more diverse.
8: This hasn't actually been an industry where there's been a lot of inclusion.
7: But above all, it's really only the quality of the comic strips that can keep readers coming back for the next 100 years.
8: What we have to do is lure them in with good work, good characters, something that is fun to look at. Not always humor humor, but things to make people think and to feel.
4: (laughs) Well, so long, everybody.
2: (laughs) But next, Battle Lines, the newest frontier.
7: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: The terror attacks in Paris have underscored the increasingly important role of social media, even as tragedy unfolds. Here's Contessa Brewer.
10: At the beginning of the night, Gilles and Marianne posted this picture on Instagram at Paris's Bataclan Theater. Excited to see the Eagles of Death Metal. Inside, other fans were sharing video of the band rocking the stage. And then, as we know, everything changed. There was shock, confusion and horror. The terrorists opened fire, and concertgoers began using social media as a lifeline. Desperate escapes were captured on cell phone cameras benjamin casanovas wrote on facebook first floor hurt bad there are survivors inside they're shooting everybody one by one were those messages potentially the difference between the swat team storming in and waiting outside to see what would happen next absolutely michael morrell is former deputy director of the cia And senior national security contributor for CBS News. That told law enforcement that they needed to move now and not wait and try to negotiate. Outside, the same story. The soccer stadium, chaos caught on camera. At restaurants, witnesses shared pictures. As the attacks intensified and police urged people to get off the streets, Parisians took to Twitter to offer their homes as a safe place to shelter. THE ATTACK SAW FACEBOOK DEPLOYING A NEW FEATURE, SAFETY CHECK, USED FOR THE FIRST TIME DURING A TERROR ATTACK, ALLOWING PEOPLE TO GET CONFIRMATION THEIR FRIENDS WERE OKAY. BUT THEN THERE IS THE DARKER SIDE. ISIS, TOO, IS USING SOCIAL MEDIA. ITS SUPPORTERS EXPRESSED GLEE OVER THE ATTACK. AND INTELLIGENCE EXPERTS WORRY THAT THE TECH-SAVVY TERROR GROUP may have been able to pull off their coordinated plot using apps with advanced encryption designed to keep messages private.
5: The time following the Snowden debate about privacy and uh, about uh, government overreaching and all of those allegations, uh, a series of apps have come out that are encrypted, that have messages, that self-destruct.
10: John Miller is Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism for the New York City Police Department.
5: You can walk in the door with a court order from a federal judge, hand it over to the company and say, we need to see what's inside here, just like we did in Mumbai, just like we did after 9-11, and they'll tell you, we can't see what's inside. We designed it to be uncrackable.
10: For better and worse, Friday night's attacks were followed globally. Prayers for Paris trended around the world, as did Recherche Paris, where the faces were haunting echoes of those faces we saw on flyers across New York City after 9-11. New technology with a familiar feeling. Desperate families searching for their loved ones. Among them, that Instagram photo of Marianne and Gilles. Friends say she's been located, he has not.
13: Yeah, the gardens are here and here.
2: At home with Sarah Palin,
13: next. Yes. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um,
2: Former Governor Sarah Palin of Alaska is not among the many Republicans running for president this time around, but she says she's keeping her long-range options open. Tracy Smith visited with Palin on her home turf. This is stunning.
1: Isn't it a gorgeous view? I love waking up to this every day. Wasilla, Alaska's most famous private citizen still lives in the same house, the one she bought before she was a household name. After the loss in 2008, did you come back here to kind of nurse your wounds? Came back here, man, because gotta get back to real life,
13: you know. Did you feel like a loser? Um, well, sure. I mean, you either win or you lose, and uh, it's like, dang, I wish I could have added more, contributed more positively. Maybe there was no chance that we were going to win
1: anyway, but that.
11: But so anyway, wait, wait.
1: Do you feel like? you're to blame for the loss in 2008 because people do blame you well it it, it takes a, a team to win
13: so it takes a team to lose i was part of the team that came in second out of two so yes yeah i mean it, it, semantics okay words matter you either win or you lose we lost that makes you not a winner
1: at that time i It all began, of course, in the summer of 2008, when Senator John McCain picked Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, a feisty 44-year-old mother of five, to be his running mate.
10: The next vice president of the United
1: States, Sarah Palin. At that moment, she had a lot going on in her private life. Her oldest son was bound for Iraq. She had a new baby with special needs, and she just found out her unmarried teen daughter, Bristol, was pregnant.
13: They say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull, lipstick. How are you? Thank you.
1: Sarah Palin was new to national politics, and sometimes it showed. Her every stumble was immortalized on late night TV.
9: I believe that diplomacy
1: should be the cornerstone of any foreign policy. And I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> she also took a lot of heat for this awkward moment with then CBS News anchor Katie Couric.
10: And when it comes to establishing your worldview, I was curious what newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed
13: and to understand I've the world? I've read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like, what coming... specifically I'm curious that you um, all of them, any of them that um, have, have been in front of me over all these years, um, I have them that... So do you think, was that a fair question? Sure, yeah. I had a crappy answer, but it was a fair question. Um, I didn't like though, the way that forever then in these seven years, that interview has kind of been stamped on my forehead as she's an idiot. I just think in the context of the whole ball of wax that day or two days of an interview and in editing, it was... It wasn't real fun.
1: And in the end, it wasn't even close. At this defining moment, change has come to America. Let me show you something, for instance. If 2008 was a hard year for Sarah Palin, 2015 hasn't been much better. She lost her job as a commentator for Fox News, though she won't exactly be going hungry.
13: See, like, this is this season's uh, moose. This before. is all
1: moose in here. Yeah, this is all moose. And this past May, her daughter Bristol's wedding to Marine Medal of Honor recipient Dakota Meyer was called off. You mentioned that one of your disappointments this year was Bristol's wedding falling mm-hmm. through, the marriage mm-hmm. falling through. Mm-hmm. Bristol's pregnant again. That yeah, can't yeah. be how you saw this playing out. Unmarried no. and pregnant again? Heck
13: no. Um, because being a single mom is, oh my goodness, my my heart goes out to the single parents, but my enormous admiration for what it is that they're able to accomplish doing double duty, and I watch Bristol do double duty all the time, you know, with her, with her little boy, uh, Trip, you know, I can't wait for about 45 more days and I'm gonna have a little baby granddaughter and I'm happy about it.
1: You're looking at it like a blessing. Absolutely, yeah. Of course there are those who say, come on, this goes against everything you stand for. Well, that. The cool thing about putting your
13: faith in God is uh, he certainly is a God of second chances and third and fourth
1: and fifth chances. I screw up all the time. She says she turns to scripture to help her through tough times, and as she writes in a new book, she's had her share.
13: I think that this book hopefully will express some of that because there's a lot of admittance of the mistakes. There's admittance in the, um, in the book about things that, um, oh, yeah, I, I orchestrated that one, I pushed it too far, and it, I, I screwed it up. And God bless the United States of America. Thank you.
1: Palin's political future may be cloudy right now. Her opinions are as clear as ever. There's this feeling that maybe instead of contributing to making things work, that you're part of the problem of people not being able to find us Because
13: some of my comments are probably very candid and perceived as caustic to some. I do that because I know that I speak for a whole lot of people who are thinking the same thing but don't have a microphone or a stage and they, they want somebody to say it and I'll say that and I'll call people out for doing something stupid and I'll use the word stupid. Um, do you worry that that's too divisive? I think too many people worry about being too divisive, or they worry about the politically correct police who will tell them, uh, you know, to sit down and shut up because you're politically incorrect. I'm like, that's part of the problem in our country right now.
4: Welcome back to the Republican presidential debate. I
1: want to move on to 2016. If you had to choose one standout candidate in the GOP field, who would it be?
13: Right now, I would say that fighter is Donald Trump, because he's got nothing to lose. He doesn't have... um, to be bought or sold, obviously, especially when it comes to to, uh, contributions, Uh, he he is his own man.
1: I may leave here and you may say, oh, that was not nice what he said, who cares? But at the moment, there are more important people in Sarah Palin's life. How did you do at school today, though? Trig, her youngest, is now seven. Did you get to go on the slide on recess? Yes. And did you get to, was your job to push the kids down the slide? Yes. Being a full-time you? mom never slowed her up? down before and it she doesn't, doesn't now. Down. I still usually write
13: something every day for my Facebook page because I want to keep our 5 million people whom we reach informed about issues that I think they, they need to start talking about. And then uh, My goodness, before we know it, it's time to give you a bath, right? Is that fun? You don't like a bath? How about brushing teeth?
1: No, he doesn't like that either. So you would leave this to go back on the campaign trail? Uh, This will always be home. I would know that I could always come back here. Translation, she'd jump at the chance. You're willing to run again. I'd be willing, that's a good way to put it. Sarah Palin really can't see Russia from her house. She never actually said she could, but what she can see is even better.
13: And see, you see a lot of silver lining here, don't you? You see, you know, a lot of, uh, there's there's clouds, but man, there's light coming through the clouds all the time. And uh, I have the illustration every day here in Alaska of um, of beauty in more ways than one. I, I look around and I get to see the beauty of uh, god's creation and man it makes me appreciate it yeah see that
3: (laughs) okay
8: (laughs) next (laughs) all aboard (laughs) based on the true story (laughs) trumbo you're the highest paid writer in hollywood in 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs.
9: Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors.
8: So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. we prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific.
7: Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have.
8: Trumbo. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere.
2: Thanksgiving. Travel is going to the dogs in the city our Steve Hartman has been to. I came to Fort
14: Worth, Texas thinking I'd seen everything when out rolled evidence to the contrary. A guy on a mower pulling nine dogs on a train. That's a new one. In fact, the only thing more surprising than the sight may be the story behind it. This train ride is the brainchild of brothers Eugene and Walter Bostick, and it's just a small part of a much larger mission. The Bosticks, who live in the same 11-acre woods they grew up in, spend thousands of dollars a year just feeding the wildlife here.
11: You name them: coon, beaver, possum. No, we don't. Yeah, the beaver does eat corn and bread. bread it sure does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Quack, quack, quack. See the ducks over there?
14: They don't miss so much as a mallard. And if you're wondering why they have this insatiable need to feed. The answer is simple. Childhood guilt.
11: When we first moved here, we killed them all. The rule of the day, anything moved, we shot.
14: But now these repentant hunters are making amends in any way they can think of, which brings us back to the train. Come on, buddy, we're going train riding. Over the years, a lot of stray dogs have wandered onto the property. Of course, they're cared for. But that wasn't enough for the Bostic boys, who thought these mutts might enjoy a little movement as well.
11: Well, we're probably ready. You don't be surprised how good it makes you feel when you see them loading up and how happy they are.
14: The train departs once a week for an hour of pure joy. The mangy misfits, now the envy of the neighborhood. The dogs no one wanted, now like celebrities on a catwalk. Their giant choo-choo toy takes the dogs mostly through the local warehouse district. But for the brothers, each trip takes them one step closer to redemption. They say all dogs go to heaven. And if that's true, there's got to be room for those who engineer their happiness.
6: you got to work hard. I swear to God, if you're not going to do it, I'm out.
2: Still to come, Sylvester Stallone on Rocky's Return.
7: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Can't you catch your little
3: chicken? Huh? Come
6: on. Move your tail. Move your tail. You look like a girl out there. What's the matter with you? I feel like a Kentucky Fried Idiot. It's
1: Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood.
2: Sylvester Stallone chased a chicken as part of his training in the 1979 boxing epic *Rocky II*. Now, all these years later, Stallone is about to appear on screen as Rocky Balboa for the seventh time. Lee Cowan has our Sunday profile.
6: Hey
5: everyone. Go anywhere in Philly with Sylvester Stallone. Yo, how you doing? <laughs> and it might as well be with Rocky himself. Is that Arnold Schwarzenegger?
6: <laughs> no, it's Sly, how are you doing?
5: Like the statue at the foot of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Look at these guys, they're unbelievable. Keep going! At 69, Stallone is a fixture here. No, I find it what do you think when you look at it?
6: I tell you, I, I don't go, hey, I look pretty good. I <laughs> swear to you, I swear to you, I swear to you, I go, I wish, I wish I was that noble.
5: It's as if Rocky was flesh and blood. People come here to pose and run those famous steps. So
6: how often would you run up these? All all the time. Come zipping past these buildings, right? All the way up and down. And standing there with him at the top? They even took my feet. (laughs) I gotta admit, it was a little surreal.
5: What do you think when you stand up here now? It's become such an iconic thing.
6: It is my favorite place ever. Is it really? I swear to God, and I feel like you can do anything from up here. You can see your whole life out there.
5: Rocky has been Stallone's life, much of it anyway.
6: It's already over. You can count them over until it's over. What's that from, the 80s? That's probably in the 70s. Taco, the last
8: round of your life! Come on, guys.
5: That was the last Rocky, nearly a decade ago. The sixth in a franchise that some critics thought should have heard the bell long ago.
6: You're 60 years old. You want to play a fighter. That's a tough sell.
5: The toughest sell of his life, as it turned out. But the Italian stallion did get one last fight. I and Stallone got to give his character a fitting farewell.
6: I thought, I'm done. And Rocky, in a sense, waves goodbye to the audience. And I was waving goodbye myself it was sort of a mutual farewell.
5: But then this happened. Director Ryan Kugler, a Rocky fan since childhood, reached out to Stallone with the idea for Creed, a boxing film that turned the spotlight onto the son of Rocky's longtime rival, Apollo Creed.
6: Your father was special. Taking the truth, I don't know if he's special. Only you're going to know that when the time is right.
5: Played by Michael B. Jordan, Creed's son has heart, but he needs a trainer. And guy, a mentor. Back he got one in Stallone, both on screen and
6: off. Oh God, did he take a beating? Oh my God. Did he? Oh my God. I wanted him to get hit a little bit. I said, it's 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 a rite of passage, Mike. You have to get clocked. Because <laughs> you did. I, I did. Mr. T, since Carl weathers these are all behemoths, and every one of them teed did off at least once. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and you went home trying to figure out. Why am I listening to country-western music backwards and I don't know my own zip code? (laughs) Oh my God.
5: As a boy, Stallone didn't really look the part of a guy who could take a punch.
6: I had a a lot of nerve, but I didn't have a lot of physicality. His birth in a small clinic in New York's Hell's Kitchen didn't go as planned. They put in forceps because I was twisted and the forceps caught me here. Instead of under here, you caught me here, so I have this crooked mouth. It damaged
5: a facial nerve on his left
6: side. And people say, oh, you slur, you slur. I go, yeah, because only half works. <laughs> Give me a break, you know. I, I don't do it intentionally. People didn't understand what I was saying for many, many, many years. Still don't. <laughs> they, they still don't. Some
5: mistook that for stupidity, including his own father.
6: Oh, man, it was never too smart. He says to me, you weren't born with much of a brain, you know, so uh, you better start using your body, right? So i become a fighter.
5: That was actually something that your dad said to you, right? Yeah, a lot.
6: (laughs) He said, you weren't born with much of a brain, so you better develop your body, you know? And it stuck.
5: When he was 12, he saw the movie Hercules, starring Steve Reeves. And that changed everything.
6: I flipped out flipped out. Out of that theater, I literally ran to a junkyard where there was pieces of metal which resembled a barbell.
5: His family moved to Philly, where Stallone spent his teenage years bulking up before heading back to New York to give acting a go.
6: They were pretty lean years, to say the least. I had, not, I had to sell my dog. I couldn't afford dog food. You really sold your dog? Well, oh, absolutely. $50 at a 7-Eleven.
5: Eventually, his bulk started paying the bills. He was cast as the guy who mugged Woody Allen on the subway. Well, yeah, what's up, man? I didn't see it. He was also the mugger who got
6: mugged by Jack Lemmon. Are you crazy, man, what it was? Precious
5: but subject.
6: nothing really big clicked. That's when I realized I'm never going to make it in acting, per se. I have to find some other niche, something. That turned out to be writing. All I did was write and write and write and write maybe 30 screenplays, of which 29 are probably horrible, but (laughs) it's the process of completing the matter.
5: He completed the screenplay for Rocky shortly after his 29th birthday,
6: writing the world he remembered back in Philadelphia. Put it this way, all the clothes in Rocky were mine. Even the hat? The hat, everything was mine.
5: Studios loved the script, but Stallone had a condition. He refused to sell the rights to his film unless he was cast in the lead role. I mean, you, were, you had no money and people were offering you hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars, right? Yeah. And you were turning it down.
6: Everything, you know. It, it went up to about $360,000, which is crazy.
0: What are you thinking about when that buzzer's on? That uh, what are you think about when the 15th round you're coming out? Adrian!
6: It turned
5: out to be a sure bet. Rocky went on to win three Oscars. Sequels started rolling out almost every few years, but the fame took a toll on his personal life. Stallone went through a divorce, married actress Brigitte Nielsen, but got divorced again after just 19 months. All while Rocky was morphing into another character. Stallone calls Rambo Rocky on caffeine.
2: It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over!
5: The script for that had been bouncing around for years, right?
6: Oh, for first blood, God. I was the 11th choice. 11th. Uh, yeah, they were just about to hire a chimp. <laughs> and then I came along.
5: Again, Stallone had some demands.
6: In the original First Blood, Rambo dies. But Stallone wanted the ending changed. There's a lot of vets that look at this and go, there's no reason to go on. Look at this, this character representing us, and then in the end he gets shot. And I thought, this is irresponsible on on my part. It made millions at the box
5: office. Within a few years, the man some thought was challenged as a child had written his way into two movie franchises. As his characters matured, so did he. He married again, this time happily, and kept writing, even directing. Did you feel like for a while, though, that after the Rockies and the Rambos, that you were owned a little bit by those characters?
6: Totally. Still do. You still do? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think, but now I look at it as a privilege. But for
5: a while, though, you did
6: want to sort of distance yeah, yourself, Yeah, I tried. Right? It never really worked, though. Everything I got is moved on, and I'm
5: here. Certainly not with Rocky. I, you know and he's at peace with that
6: now. You should be able to grab one of these birds. Are you serious? I am serious. <laughs> Chickens are slowing down. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone knows he's as much Rocky oh, welcome.
5: as Rocky is Sylvester Stallone.
6: Really emotional. You know, when you go, damn, this is this has really been magical. It's been quite a ride, hasn't it? It's been it? an unbelievable ride. A lot has happened on the steps. Keep punching, Philly. I owe you. Next,
2: when Paris is home. As it happens, David Turicamo, our man in Paris, is in New York on this weekend of mourning. His thoughts, though, are focused on the city he calls home.
11: They say that Paris is a city of a thousand villages, and no more so than at a moment like this. Sometimes those villages are just a street with its own bakery, café, newsstand, and everyone is on a first-name basis. When you enter a shop, it's always, Bonjour, David. Comment ça va? How's it going? Even though it's a city of more than two million people, you can't walk down the street without greeting two or three of them. It can be a little annoying sometimes to realize that everyone knows your business, and that's when I long for the anonymity of New York. Because in those villages, no one is ignored. Everyone is part of a community. The morning after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, my district was in shock. One of the artists killed had lived for many years just around the corner, and everyone knew him. It wasn't just a terrible event that happened elsewhere. A neighbor had been murdered. And that's why in January the city marched and proclaimed, I am Charlie. I watched the events Friday night helplessly from New York and tried frantically to call friends and make sure they were safe. But that'll be just the beginning. As the names of the victims are released, there will doubtless be people whose death will touch someone in our village. Some people I spoke with complained about the lack of security. How could this happen? Why weren't they more vigilant? Well, the police and government may tighten security, but it won't be so easy, because above all, the French cherish their liberty. They won't allow a patriot act or metal detectors to constrain their freedom. A friend of mine who owns a bistro wrote that he and his staff have opened as usual, even though they aren't far from the site of the killings. Paris is bruised, he said, but the light of the city must not be extinguished, even for one day. It won't. And it's because those villages, that sense of community, are what give Paris its strength. And that's why, for me, all of Paris is my village.
2: I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.